0: Now, that's why we get excited about coming to church, right? Jesus, only Jesus. Uh, I mean, we like seeing each of y'all. Don't get me wrong. We're glad you're here, and we like coming to a place that's warm on a cold Sunday morning. But if we have Christ, we don't need anything else. And he has made it possible for us to understand what that looks like. And so we're going to be continuing in our study of Philippians this morning. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we're going to try to cover what we can in the next uh couple of messages today and next week. And then the following week we'll get things ready for Rodney and Navy to show up around here. Do a little sermon to say, y'all be nice to him when he gets here. One of those kind of sermons, yeah? And so next week we'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. Uh, the end of that is sort of a practice these things. Here's some stuff you already know. Now, let's put this to practice. Today, Paul talks about this incredible privilege that has been granted to us by the grace of God that we might actually gain Christ, that we might know him. And in him, all the fullness of what that is. And so as we look at this passage today, we're going to begin reading in verse 7 of chapter 3. But before we get there, just a kind of a a prelude, because chapter uh, 3, verse 7 begins with the word but. So what preceded that, Paul is going through as one who had come from the religious institutions of his day, as one who had a background. He had a pedigree. And it was a pretty impressive one. He starts talking about, you know, I was circumcised the eighth day in the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, law of Pharisee, persecutor of, you know, he just goes through and says, I was something in my time. I was one of those at the king pin position of religious uh, uh, aristocracy or whatever he wanted to consider himself. He was one who actually not just persecuted folks in Jerusalem. He went out of town to find them and persecute them. So he had all that background, and he says, that was what I was depending on. My faith, my hope, everything that I thought about God was informed by my pedigree. But, verse 7, but whatever things were gain to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost. Not just the religious background stuff. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or already have become perfect. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind... And reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, this is what we want our story to be. We want to be able to echo Paul's words and echo them as an accurate reflection of what is true about us. Father, each young man and young woman, each man and woman in this room, each of those who are watching online and each of those who are coming to review this perhaps even later than the Sunday to see what your word says about these things. Father, each of us has to come to grips with whether or not these words that Paul is saying here are true about us. So we ask you, Lord, Penetrate to those places that need to be touched by your spirit. Go where my words as the preacher cannot go, but where your eternal words of truth have the penetrating power to go and where they can do incredible good for the glory of your name. So, Father, we ask you now, direct our hearts to your word that we might learn and grow and that we might see as our highest surpassing value that we might gain Christ and know him. We pray this in his name. Amen. One of the most important things that we can discover in our lives is what matters the most to us. Now, here in the church, within the walls, we know how to answer that question, don't we? What's the surpassing value, boys and girls? Jesus, only Jesus. Jesus. Good. That's the right answer. Now, the reality is that unless that answer has shaped our priorities, and unless that answer has established our purpose, and unless that answer has inflamed our passions, we may be just speaking words in the wind. How will we know? Paul gives us some real clear instruction here about how that's supposed to happen. We we know the answer. We've got it figured out. And yet there's something here that Jesus wants us to understand that he has addressed. He was always being asked, tell us about the kingdom, Jesus. Tell us what that's going to be like. And they're thinking, tell us when you're going to come with your mighty armies and destroy Rome and get rid of all the suppression. And he tells them a very interesting little short out of the many parables. He gives us this one little two-verse parable in Matthew 13 where he says, there was a merchant out looking for fine pearls. This is in verse 45 of Matthew 13. And upon finding one pearl of great value, of great price, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. Now that, that's always kind of bothered me everybody else fine with that that's okay let me just explain my discomfort i'm thinking you sold everything you got rid of everything else you own and now you have the pearl you going to eat it because otherwise you're going to be hungry because you've got nothing left to buy food with because you gave it all up to be able to get that thing are you going to be able to wear it where's your clothes going to come from you gave up everything in order to have it where are you going to live What are you going to pass on to your kids? All these questions. My little weird pea brain, you know, is trying to sort this thing out. And the issue Jesus is saying is that there are some things so inherently valuable that just having it is enough. Not just enough. It far exceeds and surpasses anything you could possibly imagine. That's how much enough it is. Now, years ago, I found a little short paperback written by a pastor from Argentina by the name of Juan Carlos Ortiz. He wrote the book back in 1975, and I'm old enough to remember when that was. And he wrote a little book called called Disciple. And in this particular book, he has a description of an exchange that was going on between the seller and the buyer from the Matthew 13 passage. Now, I normally don't do this, but I'm going to do it today. I'm going to read that little passage. Some of you are saying, well, you probably do that all the time, and you're new here, so you can say anything. Well, okay, I, I probably could, but I'm just to assure you, I don't normally read a, an extended section like this. So here's, here's what this passage says. When, when we come to Jesus and we find in Jesus everything we need, it's going to cost us everything to have him. So here's what he's talking about, the exchange. We see that we want it. So we say to the seller, I want this pearl. How much is it? Well, the seller says it's very expensive. Most of us would be done there. (laughs) No, thank you. I'm not into very expensive. He says, no, it's very expensive. But how much, we ask? Well, a very large amount. Do you think I could buy it? Well, of course, everyone can buy it. But didn't you say it was very expensive? Yes. Well, how much is it? Everything you have, says the seller. We make up our minds. All right, I'll buy it. Well, what do you have? He wants to know. Let's let's write it down. Well, I have ten thousand dollars in the bank. remind you, this is seventy-five. That was money back then. <laughs> I have ten thousand dollars in the bank. Good, ten thousand dollars. What else? That's all. That's all I have. Nothing more. Well, I have a few dollars here in my pocket. Well, much. We start digging, let's see, 30, 40, 60, 80, 100, $120. See, again, this is, you know, I got an American Express card. You know, I mean, that's about what we say today. He says, no, that's fine. Well, what else do you have? You got the 10,000, you got the $120. Well, well, nothing, that's all. Where do you live? He's still probing. In my house. Oh, yeah, I, I have a house. The house too then, he writes that down. You mean I have to live in my camper? You have a camper. Ha. Oh, well, I had that too. What else? I'll have to sleep in my car. You have a car. You have two of them. They become mine. Both cars. What else? Well, you already have my money, my house, my camper, my cars. What more do you want? Are you alone in this world? No, I have a wife and two children. Oh, yes. Your wife and children, too. What else? I have nothing left. I'm left alone now. Then he exclaims, oh, I almost forgot. You, yourself, too. Everything becomes mine. Wife Children, house, money, cars, and you too. Then he goes on, Now listen, I will allow you to use all these things for the time being. But don't forget that they are mine just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because now I am the owner. That's how it is when you're under the ownership of Jesus Christ. Hello. Okay, what's the most and highest and greatest treasure and value in your life? Jesus. This kind of commitment to Jesus? Everything is his. Well, you see, kind of, well, you know, here's, here's the deal. Um, well, here you see, I mean, I got a lot of obligations, and so I can't just, I can't, I, yeah. He's not the highest value yet, is he really? It sounds good, sounds noble, sounds like it ought to sound, but it's costing us everything to come to christ and so paul begins to unpack that for us to help us understand what does that actually look like in modern terms well that was back in those days that does that doesn't apply anymore oh yeah god really has a bad habit of saying things that don't apply to us no this is his eternal word it's for every age for every people and in every nationality and every language group and every culture it's always true this is what it always is And so he says, here's here's what has to happen. You've got to begin to reckon with some things. In order to be able to have and own and know and gain Christ as your surpassing value, there are a couple of key issues that this passage tells us are critical, non-negotiable things. The first is that he has told us that there is a prescribed path to know Jesus Christ. We can't come making up our own. We can't come saying, well... Jesus is the only way, except for all the other ways. No. He is who he says he is. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So does that sound negotiable? No, it's not negotiable. There is a prescribed path to know him. And that path is the only way to get there. And so he says there are parts of this path we need to really drill down and understand. The first part of it is to be with Paul in saying, look, I've got to come to grips if I want Christ and I want to gain him above everything else, I've got to get rid of everything else that I was counting on before. I can't do anything but count them as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Now, Jesus in Luke 9 says in verse 23, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. Then Paul picks up the themes there and says, okay, those things which I have acquired in my life, they kind of have given me the justification to think that somehow or another I'm going to be able to earn heaven. I was a persecutor of, the, of the, the new believers. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was born into a family that allowed me to be taught and brought up as a very strict Pharisee. I, I had all this pedigree of, some, of this tribe, and that, I did all of this. He says, I, that, those were acquisitions, some of the things that came to me by, by birth. But all the acquisition, all the things that I acquired, he says, I count those things but loss. There's two columns, the assets column and the liabilities column. Everything that I did see as asset has been transferred into the liability column. Are you accountants good with me there? And so it it becomes nothing. This is against you instead of for you. He says not only that, but he goes on in in the next verse, in verse 8, more than that, more than just what things I had gained for myself, those acquisitions I had in my own world, in my own resume, he says, but all things I've counted as loss and I consider all of that as rubbish in order that I could gain Christ. So he says, everything that I have acquired for myself and then, let's be clear about this, everything else in all of creation that I might be tempted or attracted to or think in my own way of of thinking that that those might help me to be able to gain Christ. He says, no, I consider all things loss and rubbish. Now, the word rubbish is a very polite, sanitized translation of the word. It's really a dung heap or a cesspool kind of idea there. He says, so I consider everything that, that I used to consider as a positive, not just a liability, it's garbage. It is worthless. It was actually dragging me into defilement and nastiness and keeping me away from the very thing that I said I wanted. He says, so I consider all these things as loss. Now, if I count all of that as loss, how am I going to do that? He says, the, the second way you're going to have to do it is not just count them as loss, but you're going to have to conform to the death of the one who has purchased new life for you, Christ. You got to conform in your own mind. To the death of Christ and be crucified with Him. You've got to consider yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. It says in Romans chapter six, verse eleven. Got to consider yourself as dead. Now, at this point, we kind of—if we got any literary background—you remember old Mark Twain. An obituary came out that you know lamented the passing of Mark Twain, (laughs) and he's reading the paper and going like, "Whoa, that's sad." And then he publishes something, says, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. (laughs) That's how we are as Christians. I am crucified with Christ, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I live now in the flesh, I live by, uh, by faith in the Son of God who loved me, delivered himself up for me. Maybe rumors of your death to your old nature are greatly exaggerated. Because one who has died to self doesn't still pursue longings that are tied to those things which should be now counted as loss. So he says, here's here's how you can tell if you are indeed considered dead in Christ. One, is there any contrition? Are you contrite? Are you sorry? Do you regret? And do you come pleading for God's mercy to be upon you regarding your own sin? Do you have a contrite heart? It says in Psalm 51 that, that God does not despise a contrite heart. That's what he's looking for in us. He wants us to come with a broken and kind, tried heart because that's the kind of heart he will not despise. He wants us to be able to see sin for what it is and to be able to hate it like he hates it. And he wants us to not play games with it and not see how close we can come to it without crossing the line into it. He wants us to avoid it. He wants us to to despise it. He wants us to see it as the cancer that it is that will destroy everything that is good and right and holy. He wants us to be contrite for that. And once we are contrite, once we have regret, once we deeply abhor our sin, the second piece of that death is I, I have that heart now, which I didn't have before I came to Christ. And now because I'm crucified, I'm conforming to his death, I hate sin. I'm not attracted to it anymore. So when I do sin, I confess it. First John says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we understand that. And then Romans 10 says that if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in, that, that confession brings us into a place where we confess our need for a Savior, we confess the sin that's keeping us from the Father. He said that's indicative of a life that is conformed to the death of Christ. And the word confess is the combination of two different Greek words, which mean to say the same thing as. When I'm confessing my sin, I'm saying the same thing about my sin that God says about it. This is not a little mistake. This is not, not a little error. It's not, a, well, I just messed up a little bit. Or I just told a little white lie. Or I just did a little bit of sin. Or I just did a little bit of this. Or I didn't go full. You know. He's going like, no, no. It's all egregious sin of the nature that made it necessary for Christ to be crucified for you. That's how the Father views even what we would consider our smallest sin. We say the same thing about it to the father we're contrite about it we confess that sin and then what happens is the love of god that brings us out of that constrains us second corinthians says in verse five uh, chapter five the love of christ constrains us having concluded this that one died for all therefore all died he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf he says this is the death issue so we need to count all things that were in our past, all our pedigree before, all the things that we were tempted to base our religious life on, whether it is church membership or whether it's the good things we do or how much money we've given to charities or, or how many dogs we've petted or, or whatever we consider as something that is worthy of being accepted to the Father. We count all of that as loss. Then we consider ourselves as dead. We conform to the death of Christ in order that we might share in the resurrection of Christ. You can't be resurrected if you haven't died, right? So he says we conform to his death. Third thing that he says has to happen in order for us to go down this path, this path that's prescribed for us, is that we need to be confirmed together as joint participants and partakers of this journey with others who are on the same path with us. We need each other. Christ is sufficient for us, but he has also made us one body So that we have need of what each one brings to the table. That which every joint supplies, Ephesians 4 says. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. That which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. That causes the building up of the body of Christ in love. So we need each other. We're we're sharing together in this relationship with the Father. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit he has placed us in Christ and then put his seal about us. He says the Holy Spirit has come as the down payment of what's yet to come. Isn't that a great picture of the Holy Spirit? Well, he's awesome, but he's just the down payment. The full experience of it is coming later. But right now, God has given you the fullness of the Holy Spirit to seal you and be a down payment for you. That you are a part of the body of Christ and you are sharing together in this partnership. You have been established and confirmed and perfected and and made holy in Christ, strengthened by his power. You're together in this thing, and you're partakers of the same joy. And so we are then partakers of the divine nature as we are experiencing what he talks about in verse 10 of this fellowship of his suffering. We get to participate in all these things. So he says, here's the prescribed path. It means that you are counting all the wrong stuff that you once may have depended upon. You're seeing that as the worthless stuff that it is. It is rubbish. What you once considered gain what you once considered your standing with God, what was once your religious world, he says, forget about it. Worthless. The song said it a while ago. Jesus. Only Jesus. Yeah, amen, amen. Not so fast. (laughs) We're quick to say the words, but we've got to back it up. How do we back it up then? He says, once you follow this prescribed path, he says, I want you to understand that what that leads to is this purpose that God has established, this holy calling that he has given you. And this is the predominant purpose. It is not a, a little side street. It's not like a, a service road to the interstate of your life. It is the predominant purpose for which you exist. And in this passage, he gives three different clauses or, or phrases that help us to understand that there's, there's a purpose That he has in mind. In Greek, there's a little word which is a purpose clause introducer. It can be translated in order that or that this might happen. And so he tells us I have considered myself as dead, I have counted as lost these things, I have confirm my place in the body of christ as we're going on together on this journey on the path that god has prescribed for us so here's what has to happen in order for me to be able to experience that i am doing all of that because christ is my treasure he is my surpassing value so i'm doing that in order that one i may gain christ the second purpose clause, to in order that i may be found in christ And third, in order that I might attain to the resurrection, that my identity is in Christ and him alive and him living through me. So let's look at those three pieces, those three purposes. If we're going to experience the predominant purpose, let's find out. Paul, what do you mean for us to do as a result of this? The first is to unpack the whole idea of what does it mean to gain Christ? He says this is the greatest gain, to know Christ that's the greatest gain that is the surpassing value of which i speak so I'm, I'm all in there's there's not any marginal commitment on my part i have nothing else that i treasure more so i do this in order that i may win christ or gain christ luke nine twenty five says what is it uh, what is a man profited if he gains or wins the whole world and loses or forfeits himself you amass all that other stuff and that's your that's your passion he says you're going to forfeit your soul don't do it what's what's happening here we want to gain christ we want to treasure christ we want to value christ as he is worthy back to that pearl of great value in the little tiny parable he gave us he said when the guy found it he He just gave up everything that he could have that. Here's our problem. We we think that Jesus is highly valuable. We think Jesus in the church, we think he is worthy to be praised, but not to be our purpose. He is worthy for us to worship him with song, but not sold out. That do whatever it takes to gain him and be found in him and to attain to the resurrection that's not quite what we're saying there's a difference between treasuring Christ placing surpassing value on Christ and just thinking he's really really cool Jesus oh yeah my age again Almond brothers seem so you remember the Almond brothers? Yeah, I know, it's rock and roll. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember, yeah. What was what was their song? Jesus is just all right with me. Now let's go out to the trailer and toke up a little bit before we go on with the second set. Yeah, Jesus is just all right. He's not surpassing value, Jesus. He's just all right. It's a great song. If we could just change the words. <laughs> maybe the melody, maybe, the, I don't know. But, but there it is. And here's the thing. In... The last decade or so, I've watched with horror this shift that's happened. And we have to, in an older generation, take some of the blame for it. We started noticing that our kids, you know, cradle to graduation, were going through our Bible studies, going through our camps, Going through a vacation, Bible school, going through Sunday school, lessons every week, coming out on the other side, going off to college, and then going, Jesus is just all right. But we're hearing other alternatives that sound interesting to us, and let's kind of check those out. Are you treasuring Christ? Not so much. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's good, and then there's a transition that happens when that's not even good. Uh, it, it breaks my heart because I actually had to take down some Facebook friendships that I'd had with kids who'd gone off to college because they were spouting obscenity-laced posts on their websites, I mean their, their Facebook pages, and on their, their posts and denying that Christ really has anything to do with him anymore. And they were angry because their parents forced them into almost like a cult-like environment in which they were given no other options. And now we've got other options. As we saw this pattern beginning to repeat, we look back and thinking, what happened? Did we teach our kids to treasure Christ or to be good church kids? Did we teach them moralistic, therapeutic deism? You're going like, I hope we didn't teach them that. I don't even know what that is. Just teaching them how to be moral. If you would just... Our sweet daughters in the church, if you can just get out of high school and not be pregnant, glory, we've done our job. Boys, if you could just not go to jail for dealing drugs, we will have completed our task. If we could just, and then we begin to stack up this behavior modification model on moral behavior. And then our teaching ends up being sort of therapeutic. Oh, if you need, if you need some consolation and care, you know, here's, here's a couple of verses you can memorize. And you can just quote those verses, and all those will go away. And if you start having thoughts, suicidal thoughts and horrible things like that, take 2 John three sixteen 16 and 1 John 1, 9, and you'll be ready by Friday to be back with it again. If you could just do this. And, and here's how you use Scripture's therapy, and we'll help you get through it. And, and God, well, he's big enough, he just doesn't want to get involved. And then we're shocked. They walk away. Saying, there's all kinds of other ways out there that are being presented to me. I'm going to go try some of them because they sound a whole lot more fun than what you're offering. And so what we realize is that they weren't treasuring Jesus. They were tolerating Jesus. And so we begin to think through, what do we do? And so we we begin to formulate a new Sunday school curriculum from bed babies up through high school. And it's called the treasuring Christ curriculum. And we wanted to take them through the scriptures every four years, take them through the word of God and help them see in the entirety of the scriptures, what God says about himself. We want them to experience the, the Luke 24 where Jesus, with the guys on the road to Emmaus helped them from Moses and the prophets and all through the scriptures to show them all the things concerning himself. This is the word of God. They're talking about me. I am the Christ to be treasured. And we just taught them moral lessons. And we just taught them how to be consistent in their quiet times if they're going to have one. Because it's really good because God loves you more if you have one. Not that he doesn't, but that's really not how we get standing with him, is it? And so the basic underlying premise was this. You don't trash what you treasure. Is that fair you don't throw it away you don't toss it on the rubbish heap if you treasure it we've got a china cabinet in our dining room it's got wedding gifts in it we've been married almost 48 years some of those things have hardly been out of the boxes but they're treasures and they're protected they are many of them in felt lined cases and others are are sitting on top of a special pads to keep them from accidentally bumping into each other and perhaps chipping something. And, and all of those things are non safe for the dishwasher. You've got to hand wash those things, which rules me out. You know, Hey, I'll help with the dishes that no, this is okay. You know, we'll, we'll do, my mother and I will take care of this. So the mother-in-law and the wife end up being the ones who do those things. Why? Because we treasure them i got several suits in my closet that I don't wear to change the oil in my car. Why? Because those things are stinking expensive. They're, they're, they're treasured possessions. I don't want to have to go replace them if I get oil stains on them or, or get them nastied up somehow or another. Why? Because they have a special place of treatment. If we think Jesus is okay, we won't treasure him and we won't treat him as a treasure. Does this make sense? And when we don't treat him as our treasure, and if he's not the surpassing value in our lives, we will not go all in to gain Christ. I consider all that stuff as loss because of the surpassing value, the incredible treasure that Jesus is. That's what's steering me. When we say, oh, gracious man, well, I, I get it. So that means that if I, I... I i'm a christian i need to make sure that in order to gain christ i got to make sure that i'm sharing the gospel with people because i need to be evangelistic in order to gain christ no that's a byproduct not a not a goal that's not your purpose you're supposed to do it but that's not the highest thing well i know i've got some issues in relationships and i need to be reconciled to some brothers and sisters yes you do but that's not the main thing the main thing is that you will gain christ reconciliation highly valuable sharing your faith with others highly valuable don't hear me say that they're not they are but they're not the main agenda the main thing is you gain christ and all these other things will be added to you and until it becomes the consuming passion of our lives we will treat it as one of many options available to us meanwhile the church languishes for lack of devotion. And what can we do? We can add more programs. We can do more activities. We can do more Bible studies. We can do more of this. We can do more of that. Here's what A.W. Tozer said about the, the issue. He says, I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe for all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. We never really get to the place where this is this pure and holy passion. It was one of the songs that came out of sort of the the passion movement for college students who would go away between Christmas vacation and the start of the new semester. They had these glorious worship conferences and teaching conferences. And there was one song, give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession that I may know and follow after you. That's the passion he's looking for here. So he says, here's your greatest gain. In order that I may gain Christ, that's why I'm doing all this. The path i'm on is there so i can gain christ secondly he says the perfect position that i'm looking to have is to be found in christ that i may gain christ that i may be found in christ and there's a whole study about what it means to be in christ and we don't even have time to even think about all that i've got like half a dozen different references as to what it would look like if we were found in christ and and our position there is perfectly situated in him i'm found in his righteousness not my own I'm found in his body, the body of Christ. I'm found as I abide in Christ as one who takes my life from his. That's all a part of it. I'm found with his character in me and I in him. The victory that I want to have to overcome in life, that is mine. I'm overwhelmingly a conqueror, it tells me in Romans 8, in Christ. I, I have this victory that I am marching in triumph with the people of God. That is a part of it. I have been found in his purpose, in his holy calling. I have been found in his glory so that I am being transformed from one stage of glory to the next stage of glory. And my light is beginning to shine with radiant splendor as more of Christ is evident in me. He says, when you are found in Christ, all that and much more is going to be going on in you. So he says, here's the thing. This, this predominant purpose that you're looking for is that you could gain Christ. He is your greatest treasure. Go all in with consuming passion for Him. Second, so that you would have this perfect, wonderful uh, identity, uh, excuse me, uh, this perfect position where you're found in Him. And then the third piece is that identity, that I may attain to the resurrection. That my identity is Christ in me, the hope of glory, as His power his majesty, his glory, his holiness is manifest in me as I attain to the power of the resurrection and as I am attaining to that, I attain to the unity of the faith that binds me together with the rest of you and we march on together with joy toward this pure and holy passion that I may gain Christ. Is it your surpassing value? Is it the dominant priority and purpose in your life only you and the lord can answer that nobody else can look on your heart and determine that they can't look at your outward behavior and determine that you may be a self righteous horrible person but on the outside everybody's thinking like oh look at that holy person look at how great they are and you and your heart know that jesus is going oh if they only knew if they only knew which i know about you (sighs) we need to go to war with hypocrisy before God. And we need to raise high the standard of authenticity and say, Lord, this is my surpassing value in life, to gain Christ and to know him. There's nothing that I live for more than that. Alexander McLaren said it this way, when we turn from this world to the person of Christ and see him as our greatest gain what happens is we discover the magnet that draws all things together. It's the, the anchor that, that steadies us in the middle of storms. It's, it's the fortress that defends us when the, when the warring enemy is trying to destroy us. It's the light that illumines our way, the treasure that enriches our lives, the law that commands, the, the power that enables. All that is ours in Christ. And we wonder, well, I just wish that were true in my life. It can be. Paul says it can be. But there's got to be a holy transaction in which you are willing to say with the old finder of the pearl, I want it. Can I have it? It's expensive. Well, that means I can't have it? No. You can afford it. But it's going to cost you everything you have. I don't have a whole lot. It's going to cost all of it. Do you want it? Because if you give it all to me, I'm going to make it available back to you. As long as you understand it doesn't belong to you. It's mine. And whenever I ask for it, I don't want you complaining. I don't want you saying, a tithe, you want a tithe? No, I want all of it. But I'm going to let you get away with the tithe just to let you be reminded that it belongs to me. I could ask for all of it, but I'm just going to ask for 10%. Because what you're going to find out is if you live on 90% fully devoted to Christ, you're going to do better than the folks who are spending 110% of your income trying to figure out how to keep up with everything else. Or if you want to be reconciled to your brother or your sister who you've been at war with for a long time, it's going to cost you crossing the line and putting that in place. But it all begins... Have I gained Christ? Is he your treasure? That's what he wants to know. And if not, when is he going to become that? Well, when he get to heaven, yeah. It's not the terms. That's not how you follow. And it's not how devotion to him becomes your predominant purpose in your life. It's all now. Let's pray. Father, we know better than to think that we can pull it off. Lord, even as we're hearing these words from my mouth, and as even I'm saying them, if it were as easy as just saying it, we'd have no problems. But there is a constant struggle. The lures of all creation are constantly drawing us back. To have our desires mixed up, infiltrated by the things of this world rather than just pursuing Christ above all. And so, Lord, we, we come to you and depend on you. We plead with you to take our heart, to take our mind, to take our very souls, Lord, and devote them to you. And then empower us by your Spirit. So that we are enabled to do that which we can't do. Father, it means that we have to walk by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law, not by a set of rules, not by a a prescription of rituals that we follow. But Father, that means every day, it means keeping our eyes on Jesus. And every day it means making every call on the basis of the indwelling Spirit opening our eyes to see what is true and right and holy. What it costs, Father, is is up to you to decide what we want to do, Lord, is once again come to you and say thank you for inviting us in this magnificent journey toward gaining Christ. We thank you for that in his name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?